Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is the 23rd chapter of the Dhammapada. We're coming to a close. And uh, as I mentioned a few times, and you've seen uh, in these chapters, as they build through the book, uh, they get more and more um, direct um, and very specific about what the Buddha is teaching and what he's not teaching. And that's something, that's a theme that runs throughout all the suttas. He's in, in many suttas, he's, he's explaining the, the significant difference between what he teaches and what everybody else was teaching during his time. And likewise, we, we do the same. Um, this sutta, the Naga Vaga, uh, Naga is an interesting word. It has, like many Sanskrit uh, words, it has endless meanings. One meaning that was used in Buddhism was to refer to uh, otherworldly or disembodied snake people who carried the wisdom of the universe through one generation to a next. Uh, Nagarjuna, one of the, the, the uh, famous uh, teachers uh, from around 600, um, he made a meal out of just a few different concepts. Um, and his, his teachings are, when you read him, it, he's both beautiful, but um, uh, beautiful, beautiful, but very, very convoluted. You can, you can get a quick headache with the reading, uh, reading his teachings. And the only reason I bring that up is the word here, Nagavaga. The Buddhist talking about the profound wisdom that is developed in the Dhamma. And then he's using an interesting metaphor, an elephant, to describe how uh, developing that. But it's also very personal. He references himself often. So pay attention to that. Like an elephant remaining calm in battle. The Buddhist words, I will remain calm when falsely accused. And then in the same paragraph, many in the world are ignorant of four noble truths. So how does the Buddha remain calm when falsely accused? because he's developed understanding of four noble truths. The tamed elephant, well-restrained, can be mounted by a king and ridden in a crowd. Foremost are tamed mules, thoroughbreds, and tuskers, all well-restrained. Probably back in the day, that was one of the most valuable things that you could have, was a, a well-tamed animal. A lot of personal wealth was based on what kind of animals you had. Foremost, foremost among people are those well-restrained. Not by tame mounts does one reach nibbana. The self-restrained have, have regained control of their minds and always do. So I'm just going to read a little bit of my commentary as it relates to that. The Eightfold Path is an individual path supported by a well-informed and well-focused sangha. Nothing external, such as the metaphor of the elephant, can carry one to awakening. The Buddha's words, a tusker deep in rut is difficult to control. Bound to a post, they won't eat, longing for freedom. 
my words. This is a profound reference to basic ignorance. Views ignorant of four noble truths bind one to relentless greed while conditioned to ignore the self-fabricated stress of craving. The Buddha recognized this feedback loop of circular thinking in the Nagara Sutta that explained very well, as he had a breakthrough of understanding leading to his awakening. So the, um, was it you or Brian that taught the greater, uh, Brian taught the greater or lesser happinesses. And this is a, another reference to that too. Are we going for the lesser happiness of staying bound to greed and aversion rooted in deluded thinking? Or are we gonna liberate ourselves from that? When we're not, it's like we're bound to a post and we don't get, and we won't, there's no um, real sustenance coming in because of us are clinging to that post, post of ignorance. The Buddha's words, a person lazy, overfed, wallowing like a pig, see? Not one minute, wasting too many words here. <laughs> Gives birth again and again to ignorance. A person lazy, overfed, wallowing like a pig, gives birth again and again to ignorance. It's an aspect of ignorance, right? It's in the word to ignore itself. And all the distractions in the world are greatly designed to do just that for human people. To cause us to ignore our own ignorance. Look this way, look that way. What's bothering you now? The Buddha's words. In the past, my mind wandered, my, wandered mindlessly wherever it wished always seeking satisfaction. Again, the personal nature of these words. Now I have thoroughly tamed my mind as the trainer controls an elephant in rut. Take your pleasure in mindfulness. Guard your own thoughts. Lift yourself out of the mire of ignorance like an elephant from the mud. Great metaphors, aren't they? Overcome any obstacles to find a wise and prudent friend established in the Dhamma. Keep their company with refined mindfulness and joy. And then this is really, um, I don't even know the right metaphor. It's astonishing what the Buddha says here. But when I finally came across this, it so helped me because once I started developing the Buddha dot, the Buddha's Dhamma, um, I realized that all my other associations in modern Buddhism, which really kind of went halfway up and down the East Coast. Um, I, I just couldn't do that anymore. But I also felt in, initially very alone. But I couldn't bring what I was learning through understanding what the Buddha actually taught into these different practices. It just didn't fit. And so the Buddha says, if no wise and prudent friend established in the Dhamma can be found, it is better to go your own way, like a king leaves a leaves a conquered village or a lone elephant in the forest. We are so fortunate, I consider myself so fortunate, that I don't have to wander around all alone anymore. You know, we're a, we're a small sangha, but we are vital, and we're living the Dhamma. As the Buddha teaches in the Anapanasati Sutta, what we're doing is rare in the world, it's unique in the world. That doesn't mean we're special, what we're, what we're recognizing in all of us is our own ordinariness, but that's liberation, isn't it? We're just like every other human being, except we understand these four noble truths. Live carefree like an elephant in the forest. Establish seclusion and abandon harm. There is no fellowship with fools. 
better it is to live alone. Fortunate are wise friends when needed. Fortunate is contentment with what occurs. Fortunate it is to end ignorance before death. Fortunate it is to end suffering and awakening. In this world, it is skillful to serve one's parents. In this world, it is skillful to serve monks and nuns and wise disciples. Why is that? Why is it skillful to serve parents and monks and nuns, meaning your teachers and the Dharma? Because you wouldn't have a life without your parents. They deserve to be served. And we wouldn't have the Dhamma without those that teach us. Skillful it is to develop virtue. Skillful it is to persevere. Skillful it is to restrain mindlessness. Skillful it is to develop wisdom through the Noble Eightfold Path. That's today's chapter. And I think like most of them, it's remarkable. But I also think maybe if you want, you can comment on it if you know it yourself how the Dhammapada is kind of building to this crescendo in the last few chapters. So what do you say about that, Jane? Hi, John. Thank you Hello, for the team. Hi. Um, I'm reminded what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, too, about taking responsibility. And that's what yeah. this is all about, taking responsibility for the quality of our minds and th that'll determine the quality of our experiences. So. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Jeff, how are you? Well, thank you, John. Hello, everybody. Um, yeah, this, uh, it, it is vital to guard and choose your associates well. It, it is, I find, one of the more difficult things as you go through ordinary everyday life because you are in contact with with uh well both wise and fools but yeah. uh you you're kind of in a position for most of us anyway where you you've got to make those contacts so you know the seclusion takes place in your own mind and yeah. um I, I i found that enormously helpful because i you know as i started with in the sangha and studying with you john the i had just gone into retirement and i was enjoying a quiet secluded retirement somehow got talked into going back to work and the contrast couldn't be greater <laughs> uh, so uh yeah no i i think without without the ability or having had that experience of some solitude and seclusion and having the choice with whom you associate, associate, it would be extremely difficult, I think. A big hurdle for most people to abandon yeah. unwise associations. Yeah, it is. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, I, I was still in the construction business, you know, at the tail end of it, um, when I started gaining an understanding of this, the, the, Buddha's whole notion of wise associations and how important it was. And there were times and things that things that I never did before, such as tell customers we just weren't a good fit and walk away from a lot of money. But because I didn't want to establish what I knew at that point was an unwise association, in the past I would have tried to manage it somehow. And I always got in trouble. I mean, nobody likes to be managed. You know, and I always got in trouble when I tried to manage a customer rather than just have it, you know, just be a, a straight business transaction. The wisdom gained 
Oh, my teacher, Kevin. Hey, John, how are you? I'm good. Good, good. Uh, thank you for the teaching. Uh, I liked what Jeff had to add there. Sort of the greater pleasure is, you know, out in the world and oftentimes with unwise associations and the lesser pleasure is, you know, seclusion. And I like how the Buddha says establish or the words say, excuse me, establish seclusion and abandon harm. And, you know, that's, that's sort of what Jeff was just mentioning. You know, we can harm ourselves with unwise associations. So we have to kind of guard our thoughts and it's, it's okay to be, uh, you know, content with what occurs, as it says further down. So I appreciate it, John. Not 50 dead. Great insight, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, nobody minds being on camera. Everybody's all buffed up. <laughs> Here's Julia. Hello, Julia. Hello. Hi, everyone. Thank you, John, for the teaching. Um, I had a question about it's skillful to serve one's parents. Um, and I think I couldn't tell if that was your interpretation of it because without them, we wouldn't be here. That was a John ad. Well, yeah, that yeah. was, that was right. what I, why I thought the Buddha put for him. The, the Buddha made a point of honoring his mother. His, his mother actually joined the Sangha. His father remained king. And throughout the Buddha's life, he, he spent time with his dad. He didn't just ignore him. In fact, there's a, a a suit about when his father died, the Buddha was very upset. He left and walked, I think it was 140 miles or something, to be with his dad on his deathbed. You know, some would say, well, why did he care about it? You know, in some traditions, there's this idea of nothingness or emptiness. So why would an awakened person care about that? Well, of course, he was a human being. Yeah. It's a way of, of saying, well, this is how you are in the world. Yeah. You are in the world. You you honor those that, that are that sustain you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think where my question or the point that I'm curious about is coming from is how you balance that desire to serve elders, teachers, parents um, with out attachment. Mm -hmm. Because that's a great question. Yeah. Um, is it about intention? Like, I guess there is. Yeah. There's a word called chanda. In fact, it was the name of the Siddhartha's horse, too, chanda. And that means skillful desire. Mm. And so the skillful desire to serve one parent is not something that's based in a fabrication. It's based in an understanding of what they've done for you, give you, give you a life. Um, and the same thing for those that can teach us the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. You know, that it, it, it's a skillful desire to honor them um, because of what they've given us. And I feel that way about about the Buddha. You know, there's not there's not much I could do for uh, Siddhartha Gautama now, except um, remain uh, maintain fidelity with what I think he taught. Mm -hmm. You know, and I remember reading something from Richard Bach, who wrote a couple of good books and some crazy ones. Robert, um, that Siegel one, I can't remember what it was now. Jonathan Livingston. Yeah, but a couple of the really good ones. Anyway, in one of his books, he said the best honor you can give a writer is to buy his books. And I think that the best honor I can give somebody like Siddhartha Gautama is to maintain that fidelity with what he taught. You know, that's my way of, of serving him. Um, it, it, if someone, if you ask me, do I feel like I'm attached to the Buddha or am I clinging to him? I would say no, because I, I you know, I, it's just a practical understanding and 
these things like reward and respect and honor, I think are important and they're important aspects of the Eightfold Path as long as they're not rooted in some kind of um, eye-making intention. So if we're our respect, th these are, this is the most, um, it, it, this is the most important thing I've ever learned in my life. And I see it working for other people. So I can't think of anything or anybody that I respect and honor more. And again, so that's why I want to maintain fidelity to this. Um, so does that answer your question? Yeah, skillful desire is really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Also, if it's if this honoring and, and respect is based in gratitude, mm -hmm. then you know that's skillful. If it's based in uh, I don't want to lose these people, mm -hmm. then yeah. you know, there's then you you have a little problem. Is obligation on making? Uh, usually, but it, there, it, 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 because it seems like you, you might have made a rule in your mind for some reason. So I don't feel obligated to do one thing or another for the Dhamma, for, or actually for anybody in the world. All questions. Um, but I do feel obligated to be here when I can. So all, all questions should be put through the lens of the formal truth. Yeah, there's a Dhamma teacher. Talking. <laughs> there are constructive fabrications. Of course, this is all fabricated. It's all impermanent. Yeah. But if it's a skillful way to get into right view, then that allows you to have obligation and not attachment. Yeah. You can enjoy your life and not be attached in the in that lens of wrong view. So it, it doesn't exclude anything. You know, this practice doesn't exclude anything, but it, it allows you to have that lens of, of this practice. And that allows me to have greater pleasures everywhere because I, I don't have that wrong view. I just, there are many aspects that just aren't there anymore. So you know, don't get caught up into these like well, what about this? You know, these little trick things that you know you run up against, love, uh, ambition, uh, you know, mm -hmm. obligation. Just mm -hmm. you know, do the lens of the formal truth. That that's right view. It's such a great question though, because as I said about me, I I feel no stress over my obligation to come here. Tuesday and Saturday, I look forward to it. And I think that, mm -hmm. that, that's an aspect of chanda, of skillful desire, mm -hmm. to make yourself obliged to come to class when you can't make yourself obliged to sit twice a day, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the word obligation could have a harsh connotation to it, but in the right context, framed by the Eightfold Path, framed by right speech, action, and livelihood, right effort, it's a good thing, isn't it? And, and the, the test, as you just said, the test is, is that does it lead to stress? Yeah. If it mm -hmm. leads to stress, then you're tripping up somewhere on the four mm -hmm. noble truths. If it doesn't lead to stress, you're right on the path. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If a day is stressful, you know, look, look at that and say, this shouldn't be stressful. You know, coming twice a week, sitting twice a day, it shouldn't be stressful. So, Think of it in terms of formal truth, and it'll allow you to like then be. That's what allowing you to be gentle with yourself means is 
the full number of truth is not trying to force you to do something that is, you know, stressful. So again, it just allows you to be gentle with yourself. That's my only understanding of what that phrase means. Yeah, and it's an aspect, all of that is an aspect of taking the triple refuge. And now that I'm saying that, I had three, there's three classes between the end of the Dhamma Plot and our retreat. I was going to put some other classes in, but I think I'll teach the Ratana Sutta, where the Buddha teaches the triple refuge. But that is that we take refuge in the Buddha, not in some mystical, magical human being that's inaccessible to us, but in the understanding that a human being actually awakens. Take refuge. Refuge is a place of comfort and safety, isn't it? We take refuge in the Dhamma. His, he left his teachings for us. We can take refuge in that. We can take safety and comfort in knowing that. And we have that third refuge that, again, is so rare in the world. We take refuge in a well-formed and well-focused song. So that informs everything else, too, doesn't it? So my obligation to that triple refuge is a, is a uh, skillful, you know? An obligation to... to um, I don't know, go to go to the horse track every Wednesday. I used to do that, that's why I said it. You know, that's probably that proved to be an unskillful obligation for me. You know, <laughs> financially and um, but as a, as an example. Or even the, the obligation to go to a to to a job a job that might be um, pure drudgery or overwhelming for some reason or another. A lot of work is becoming overwhelming. We're expecting Jobs are putting this incredible amount of work that people are supposed to do in a day when it's not possible to get that amount accomplished. And most people take that personally rather than recognizing, and this isn't every job, mm -hmm. but it, it's just not humanly possible to do some of the things that we're being asked. Um, recognize that obligation can lead to a lot of stress if you think it's on you to do the impossible. When in a lot of cases it isn't. I used to go more and I used to have this discussion, she's an OT. And even back 10, 12 years ago, and most of the health field is like this, there's so much pressure to do so much more work than any human being could possibly do. See X number of clients, et cetera, et cetera. And I, you know, I tried to reassure more that just because somebody's asking you to do it or telling you to do it, doesn't mean that you can do it or should do it. So maybe getting a little bit off topic, but there, there can be obligations that if they're causing a lot of stress, it's a good idea to look at where the stress is coming. If it's just because, man, I'm not going to work today, well, you know, that's something else to look at. But in a lot of cases, it's such a good point. It has a, a really, uh, possibly really penetrating um, uh, aspect of your life that, you know, look at all your obligations of these things that I want to continue or not. The Dhamma would kind of naturally bring that too, I think, you know, as you continue your Dhamma practice. <coughs> I don't go to the very strapping every Wednesday anymore. Great questions. Here's Laura. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, and thank you for the guided meditation in the beginning, too. Um, I don't know, every time I listen to the instructions, it's like, new even though it's the same thing hundreds of times over again you know when you say settle into your mind I was thinking about that you know even if it is in a state of you know distraction or whatever um hearing that you know hearing you say that in the guided meditation always helps yeah and really brought 
you know, back to the sensation of breathing in the body. So thank you for those instructions. You're welcome. And um, yeah, I like how when you were saying, you know, talking about the Buddha's words, that there is no true sustenance really that you get from the lesser, seeking a lesser kind of happiness rooted in, you know, greed, aversion, deluded thinking. Yeah. Um, or like what Julia was saying, something rooted in like an attachment, you know, like attachment for me with my parents, it's like an attachment to fear, you know, fear of losing them. And mm -hmm. that's something I have to constantly think about. So. Yeah, it, it's another, it, you know, another um, potential stumbling block, isn't it? As we, we have yeah. parents getting older and that fear that we're going to lose them. I remember the first time I was, I think I was 13 or 14, I was 14. The first time I saw a body in a coffin, uh, it happened to be my best friend, like a running partner of mine. And I still remember walking into the school Catholic mm -hmm. church and seeing that body up at the front of the church. And it was my first thought was, holy crap, my parents are going to be in that box one day. And for years, I was, I just, I just knew that I couldn't face that, seeing them in that box. I couldn't. But when it finally came time for them to pass, it was, uh, my mother was sick for a long time and really agony, so it was a relief, but still, um, it was really just an understanding. And I think I talked about when I went to my father's wake, mm -hmm. he was 101. You know, it was not that it was time for him to go, but it was time for him to go. And yeah, you know, <laughs> um, and it was, I, it, I, just, I still remember walking into the room. I hadn't seen him for a couple of weeks, at least I was seeing him often. And I saw Dad in the box, you know, open coffin. And I just felt this great gratitude, sadness that's coming on me now, just for having known this man and nothing that should be different. Mm -hmm. You know, how fortunate I was to have a father like this, to have a relationship like we had. And I think as you continue with the Dhamma, you realize that what's most important is that you have your parents. Mm -hmm. And at some point you'll be able to say, I had these parents, they were wonderful people. Right. And that's enough. Mm -hmm. I met your parents. You got a couple of good ones here. Yeah. It's fortunate. Don't you show more strength now with your parents? Yeah. The, like honoring my parents for me is like practicing wise restraint. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's <laughs> common too. Yeah, yeah, that's what that means. Yeah. It is. My yeah. father was the biggest nudge. Every every time I saw him, he gave me a needle about something. Almost as I was walking out the door, every time it was always this and that. Mm -hmm. But at his 80th birthday, I said, that's the, I used to, I walked out the door on his 80th birthday thinking, when the hell is this guy got to stop doing the keto? And the next thought was to myself, my God, he's 80 years old. He's never going to change. And I just I let it go. And our relationship was good. It just got better. So I know what you're saying. You know, practice wise restraint. That's the beginning of ending that conflict. You know? Yeah. I mean, whereas, you know, the pra religious practices or whatever I was kind of doing before wasn't really helping, but this. Dhamma practice for whatever reason it worked. <laughs> oh yeah, I was I was torn. I knew my parents were going to heaven, but I didn't think I was going to make it there, and I was really fearful. Really, I mean, I... <laughs> yeah. But well, in, in other you know religions, it it says you know obey your parents. Right. Here it says honor your parents. Yeah. And that that's the difference, you know. Does it come out of fear or does it come out or of gratitude? gratitude? Right. Does it come out of obligation or does it come out of gratitude? 
Yeah, King Suddhodana, the, the Buddha's father, didn't want him to leave. The Buddha snuck out of the palace in the middle of the night just to get away from all of them. But you know, that's what he had to do for his own liberation. But he remained you know, in a loving relationship with his father until he passed. Yeah. yeah. The, the, just looking at the Buddha's life, and again, that's why we talk about it a lot, because just the way he lived his life is such an example. Today, 2,600 years later, to all of us, how to act, how to live within the Dharma. Yeah. What do you think, Zach? Great discussion. It is. Thank you for teaching. I'm take noble silence. Yeah. Thank you. Let's keep going that way. To my left. Hello, David. Yeah. And just to answer, for whatever reason. Yeah, I know. You know the reason. Practice. Your concentration is increased, mm -hmm. which means you can be mindful of those four foundations. And then when something arises, you can show restraint. Right. Right, right then and there. Mm -hmm. Right then and there. Yeah. So that's the difference. It's like, that's the nuts and bolts of the practice. Yeah. That's when you practice. That's it. Right here, right now. Yeah. All I'm going to do is what's coming up right now. Right. All I'm going to do. Thank you, David. <laughs> Hello, Matt. John, good to be here with everybody. Good to have you here. Um, good discussion. I'm going to take up the silence tonight. Thank you. It's wrong. I keep seeing these, these little uh, Johnny Carson nuggets. <laughs> Every one of them is just terrific. It's a good way we can't have Don Rickles in the song. Or Buddy Hackett. <clears throat> or Buddy Hackett. The guy had marbles in his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> um, the line that I liked the most in this chapter was um, a well-restrained Tusker can be ridden in a crowd, yeah. can be safely ridden in a crowd by a king. Yeah. And it just describes you know, how you can be in the world with a well-restrained mind yeah, without yeah. causing any harm. Mm. You know, so glad you brought that out. That's, um, you know, here's a practice that, that works. Uh, you can be, you can be harmless. And it, how do you get to be harmless? By restraining the mind. Yeah. That's, that's all there is to it. Yeah, another another way of saying it is when you master your mind, you can move freely through the world safely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, carefree, yeah. like in the last suit we talked about. Yeah. Another suit too, carefree, like an elephant. Mm -hmm. No stress. Yeah. And I, I would bet. Thank you, Rob. Um, I would bet we would all say you don't have to that your life is becoming more carefree, and you're feeling the liberation of the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. Well, if you are, and I think you are, and I hope you are. Recognize that's your own right effort that's bringing that about. It's your own right effort. So good for you and good for all of us. We're so fortunate to have these teachings. Does anybody have any questions or comments? The uh, uh, the Dhammapada is now available in Kindle, paper book, and hardcover. Uh, you better get it quick. It's running up the charts. Um, there was another announcement that I need. Oh, it, it, it's not that big of a deal. The, for some reason, the calendar, if you access our calendar through the website, you won't get there. 
Um, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to restore it. But you can still get it to link to the email. All right, I think that's it. We'll finish with Meta as we always do. So these are the Buddhist words on Meta um, describing an awakened human being. And this has some fidelity and faithfulness to the original. Um, but my restoration um, is contextually a little bit different than you might find, but I think it, it's, it's more in line with what the Buddha would have meant here. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. <coughs> and the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their way. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful not to deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance of four noble truths. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for a really wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank you, John. Goodbye, all. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.